0: Have you been zombified by education?
1: Uh, Yeah. Uh, Yeah.
0: (laughs) You seem a little uncomfortable, Dave.
1: (laughs) It's a big one. It's a big topic. You know, it's like in so many ways. Right. I mean, yeah. yeah. Haven't you?
0: Yeah, I definitely have been zombified by education. Um, I remember Being a kid and being so fucking curious, I was like always at the library, like even when I was two, I was like, you know, like interested in anatomy. And, you know, like I was, I was like a nerd from the time before I could even really speak in full sentences, I think. Um, And uh, I was kind of like excited about going to school until I got to school. And like, it was just like really boring. And it wasn't until high school that I was like, oh, okay, like, yeah, I'm learning some stuff. I'm liking this and I got to college and I was like, "Yes. This is it." But there was a long time when I was very unhappy in school, to be honest. Uh, I don't think we talked see, my, about this, but really, no. I was really unhappy in school for most of my childhood. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. Yeah. I was the opposite. I actually
1: think I um I loved school. Like I didn't love every aspect of school. Like I was I was shy, you know, but mm-hmm. Man, I loved my classes, you know, and I would like read all the time. And um, I didn't like college that much. Uh, And so, um, where'd you go to? I went to NYU in New York (laughs) and so to film school. And I liked a lot of it, but um, there were issues. uh, Mm, And, Mm -hmm. um, and and I and more and more I think I realized that there are so many issues so many of the ways that like there were things in school that I just like thrived at like those little tests like we'd get these six question math tests and it was me and this kid Carrie and he and I would like compete for these math tests but it's like I think all the other kids in school hated these math tests right like <laughs> and so like it really was designed for I feel like a kid who spent like all summer, like going through games magazine doing puzzles cause they couldn't stop. And that was me. Right. And mm. so, um, so, yeah. so it
0: worked, it worked for you, but you could already see it wasn't working for a lot of other kids.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't even know if it worked for me as much as I just, I thrived. Um, but I still, you know, I still left without some key basic skills perhaps. So, mm. um,
0: uh, yeah. So today, right, we're gonna talk about all of this with Meredith Small. Or, I mean, we already have, right? We
1: we have, but yeah. So, so let me ask: Have you have okay. you been zombified by Meredith Small?
0: I was gonna ask you the same question <laughs> because I totally am. I am so I've been zombified by Meredith Small for decades. Like I read her books um, twenty years ago. Uh-huh. A bunch yeah. of them. I
1: guess I I yeah. I read the Our Babies Ourselves. It must be 17 years ago, because yeah. that's how old my kid is. And it had such a huge impact on the way we raised our kids. In like in this way where it was like Finn had like colic and he didn't sleep really well, and we were trying to figure out like ferberizing him and these sorts of things. And it was like uh a lifesaver like to be totally honest oh um, yeah
0: yeah for me it was both a lifesaver and just so interesting like to take this you know cross cultural perspective on you know how babies are raised ha- and then also kids right so the kids book like you know how kids learn and how they learn differently in different environments and in different cultures and um yeah it just you know it really really stuck with me in terms of um, you know, every step of the way with my kids sort of having this perspective of, yeah, this is how we do things in the United States in, you know, like here in Arizona where, you know, my kids have mostly grown up. um, But it's not like this is the only way to do it. And you know, that there is, there are other, there are other ways that kids um, grow up, that ways that kids learn and that, to a certain extent, we do need to, you know, trust ourselves and our kids about some aspects of learning. I mean, not to the extreme where we just let anything and everything happen, but um, yeah, it's definitely made me more receptive both to like my own sort of feelings about what is going to work for my kids or not and listening to what they have to say about what will or won't work for them.
1: Yeah. So, so this was a really, exciting podcast. And, and we got to p- totally put her on the spot and say, all right, now fix education. Yeah, that's right. right? Yeah. <laughs>
0: I feel like it was kind of a tall order. We're like, Meredith, like, you know, all these things, like how can we fix everything? <laughs> um, and I, you know, and I have to say though, like it, one of the things that was really cool for me about this is, you know, going in, I maybe had a more pessimistic view about sort of where we are with education, um, than coming out because Meredith was talking about a lot of things that, you know, do work in a lot of places where like kids are super engaged and teachers are able to, you know, put together environments in the classroom that kids love and are learning a lot at the same time. So that was, yeah, no, it was an interesting
1: dynamic because I felt like this was an episode where we were like, tell us how it's zombified. She's like, it's kind of great, actually. (laughs) (laughs) She was like, have you ever met a teacher? They're freaking awesome. And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah. But so, but, uh,
0: yeah, so we end up kind of talking about all these levels, right? There's like students, there's teachers, and then there's all the like broader systems that were um, that are, are part of sort of setting up the educational institution. So you know, so the politics at higher levels and at you know regional levels and all of that, and um, kind of you know talking through really through this podcast, what what level is the zombification happening, you know, and you know what can we do to make the things happen that I think. You know, could reduce the zombification that we don't want. Um, but at the same time, recognize there do need to be some, you know, regulations and things about how education works. I mean, it's uh, tricky. Right? It's a
1: really tricky one. Like, like, let's be honest. Like, if you think, if you're looking for the time code for when we exactly say how to solve the education crisis in America. Sorry. Um, <laughs> it's a tough one. This one's a tough one, yeah. but I think there's some good ideas throughout. So
0: Absolutely. And I feel like this is kind of the beginning of a conversation, honestly, right? That uh, I think a lot of us are wanting to have about how do we do a better job um, with education? And that doesn't mean like burning everything to the ground and starting over, but it means like looking at where are things working? Um, Where are people feeling, you know, really genuinely engaged and curious and, you know, learning the kinds of things that they feel will be valuable for them in one way or another? And then how do we grow that? And how do we, you know, uh, export that more broadly? So there's a lot of cool things that we talk about in this podcast. And also, Dave, we just get to talk to Meredith Small for like more than an hour, which was so great. (laughs) I just, I mean, like, I just want her to like be my adoptive aunt. Like, I just, I know you
1: do. You you actually said, this is not the first time you've said that. So Meredith, if you're listening. Yeah. um, (laughs) After,
0: after we got off the, the call with you, Meredith, I was like, Dave, I just, yeah, I just want Meredith to like adopt me in one way or another. So, so yeah, so it was, amazing getting to talk to Meredith. Um, and It
1: really, it really yeah. was. Like, it yeah. really was. And so, um, so yeah.
0: So, so maybe we should stop talking so you all can hear from this week's Fresh Brain, Meredith Small. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. Try to fight it, but it's something psychological with you. Makes me act the way I do. I'm not trying
1: to be over analytical. Retracing time Mm -hmm. to remind myself how lovely this could be. But something
0: else is taking over me. Meredith, Will, I think we should just jump in because you and I talked the other day and. I think you kind of have an idea of sort of what what we're what we're up to and we have a lot of uh, exciting things to to chat about. So, um yeah, so I think we should just just jump in. What do you think, Dave? Yeah, let's
1: go yeah? for it. Okay, awesome. Yeah.
0: Um, so, uh, Meredith, I guess I want to start. Um oh, well, no. We should have you introduce yourself in your own words and then I'll ask you some questions. So, <laughs> Meredith <laughs> Meredith, thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, uh, oh, well, okay. So I'm, I'm just like not on my game today. Um, <laughs>
1: You're so excited today. I, I'm, You're like jumping like, up, up and down.
0: I'm too excited. <laughs> today. I'm so excited. Um, we, Dave and I will be recording an intro to this episode where we'll kind of like, you know, say who you are and mention some of your books and stuff. But you should just, you know come in um and say in your own words at the beginning too because then it's nice people get a sense both of like you know your official titles yeah. and things that you've done and then you can also just you know whatever is important to you in terms of you know your identity in various ways which we were talking about the other day right so okay yeah. oh, there's so many connections uh, just like we have to start
1: <laughs> all right so so meredith so <laughs> thanks so much for being here today could you tell us in your own words a bit about yourself and your background
2: Sure. Uh, and it's really nice to be here. I have done one uh, broadcast with you guys. I don't, I don't quite remember when it was, but I remember it was really fun. Um, so I'm a professor emerita uh, from Cornell University, which means I'm retired from Cornell after uh, 28 years of teaching anthropology. Um, and then I continue to teach online uh, for the money, uh, you know, putting it <laughs> college for a while. And um, I'm also a visiting scholar at the University of Pennsylvania in the anthropology department. And my my history is that I was trained as a primate behaviorist, and I used to study macaques, macaque monkeys. I studied them in three different places, three different species. And then I began writing for the popular audience and became as a an extra career, I suppose, a public academic science writer, um, did, had a column for livescience.com, was a commentator for All Things Considered, and wrote a bunch of books. And what I loved about doing that work is it allowed me to interview other anthropologists or researchers and write about their work. And one of the things that I discovered was it made me a better teacher, Because I could stand up in front of my class and talk about a study about um, certain blood work uh, among the Hutterites and how that came out because such and such a person did that work. And the book I'm most known for is called Our Babies, Ourselves. It's about
0: parenting across cultures. I don't want to interrupt you, but I have to. I have to interrupt you because, <laughs> Meredith, when I had my kids, I was like reading your books like over and over again. And they were not just like inspiration, but I feel, I feel like they helped me wrap my head around like what it means to be a parent in a way that was not clouded by all of these like weird cultural idiosyncrasies of the West because like all the parenting advice that's out there that people like give you these books, you know, like what to expect when you're expecting. And and you're just like, what, like, where did this come from? This is just like somebody made some stuff up and then people pass it down a bunch. Right. So your books just like grounding it, you know, in like the actual anthropology of how we as parents interact with our babies and our children was absolutely transformative for me as a parent. So I'm a total fangirl. I don't know if you could tell, (laughs) but that's what's going on here. I know exactly how
2: old that book is because I was uh, looking at the galleys, checking the galleys uh, with my daughter in a sling on the front of of my chest, you know, and she's 25. So I I know it's 25 years old and I still get fan mail. And I have to say, I'm... extraordinarily proud of that book. And it's not so much what I did, it's that I got to do it. it. It was fabulous for me. And I went all around interviewing anthropologists, these ethnopediatricians, basically anthropologists, human development people, pediatricians. And it was. It, it came to the conclusion that the advice we get in America is completely crazy and it's, it's different from everywhere else. And that's been... A minor crusade of my life, giving talks about that, and really trying to bring the kind of ease to people that, as Dr. Spock actually said, the first line of his book is, "You know more than you think you do." And I, I learned a lot giving the talks. I mean, the audience was incredible, and, and mostly people say, "You gave me the right to behave as a parent the way I wanted to: carry your baby, sleep with your baby, and." I didn't set out to do that and it is really an honor that that has been the result. And then I wrote kids, which is about, um, from the ages of about two until teenagehood. And that was really fun because I, I got to follow people, um, you know, who do work on children and stress and like Mark Flynn. And really I love that stuff. But, um, my friend Alma Gottlieb who studies, um, infants, the bang, uh, people of West Africa, she once introduced me as a wandering anthropologist. And she mm. said, some people, they they have a field site. They stick with it their whole lives. They write about those people or those animals. But Meredith is a wandering anthropologist. And it's actually true. Uh, I go, I, I, I do a subject for a while, and then I do something else. So most recently, during retirement, I've actually written, just finished my second book about Venice, Of All Weird Things, uh, because I'm no historian, I'm no Renaissance historian, uh, no medieval historian, but I wrote a book about uh, ven- inventions in Venice, of which I found 225. And also, the latest book is about a medieval map of the world, Fra Mauro's map, and ha- the first map based on science rather than re- religion. And it hangs in the museum in Venice. So well, I just finished that book. And so, you know, who knows? what The, the
0: Venice thing, <laughs> thing is appropriate because you are a bit of a renaissance woman, we have to say. <laughs> I guess so.
2: I, I guess so. I think for me, and it it, it speaks to what we're going to talk about today, is I found that w- when people retire, it's what are you going to do? Uh, you know, What makes you happy if you're lucky enough to have uh, uh, some kind of income? And you don't have to worry about that. And I found that the most important thing to me is intellectual engagement and learning something new. And so that really explains my whole book and science journalism history is I love to learn something new. If somebody tells me about their work and they can explain it in a certain way. And I think also because I stood up in a classroom for 28 years and tried to convince 18-year-olds that there were people on the earth that weren't exactly like them, it it brings on a style of trying to explain things that uh, I think a lot of practice gets you into that. And it's really a joy. It's a joy. And I miss teaching a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I did my last, I did an online class last January for Cornell. And when I did my grades it was really sentimental because I always felt like doing grades was a sacred moment, actually. And Mm. the only power I ever had on earth, you know, (laughs) I I was a 16 year old to clean up her room, but I could give grades, you know? And so when I did the last grade grades, and I'm sure you all as uh, professors, you know that it is a very, a very personal moment because you're affecting people's lives. And, you know, in general, we all care about, our college students and mm-hmm. hope that we've taught them how to think and how yeah. to learn and, and maybe something new too.
0: Yeah. I, I love that Meredith. And I think like kind of having this life course perspective on learning um, it for me puts like what's happening in universities and before universities, you know, just in our whole education system in like a different framework because I do think a lot of people, everybody has, Inherent curiosity and wants to understand the world. Now it can manifest in different ways, and I think for a lot of kids, the educational system is not where their curiosity and interest in the world has an opportunity to flourish. Um, but it's there, and the fact that you know a lot of people do retire and then decide they want to learn a bunch of things, right? Like you know, th- this desire that we have as humans to understand our world, I think is is really fundamental, and. I think it's really worth thinking about how do we align the systems that we have that, you know, are called our educational systems so that they really cultivate that and channel that in ways that will ultimately help people and help all of society, right? That's like, there's an opportunity there. It feels like that we're missing. It's interesting
2: because I I think that as an anthropologist, uh, engaging students or even the public is actually pretty easy because this is, after all, the study of humankind, which can, is is a big bag. You know, you can throw just about anything into it. But it speaks to what you said before: is most people, not everybody, but I would certainly say the majority of humankind has that question: Who are we? How did we get here? Where are we? Where are we from? What are we capable of? And to be very cynical about that, I think this is a product of having a large and complex brain. And it, it is both, it both terrorizes us and engages <laughs> us. And it allows just about anybody on the street to talk about human nature. Is there a human nature? What is human nature? And it tends to be a place where people throw th- things in, like it's human nature to be aggressive you know, it's human nature to guard your territory. Well, we really don't know the answer to those questions. But I think in general, at least in in my career, um, I start talking about what monkeys do and people can kind of fade away. But as soon as I start saying, and humans do exactly the same thing, then their attention comes back.
0: Meredith, I'd love to talk a little bit about like when learning starts, you know, and, and sort of what you found in your, you know, very cross cultural approach to babies and kids. Um, you know, when does learning start? You know, what does that early learning look like? And then, you know, how, how does that, how does that change as you go from, you know, being like this little entity that's like processing you know, little pieces of information coming in and forming neural networks to like being a social being that's interacting with your world. And, you know, what, what does that look like over the course of, you know, de- development from... I don't think it ever stops.
2: And I think it starts as soon as they're here. I mean, I haven't read Ed Young's book yet. Um, what is it called? The Impossible World? Uh, anyway, it's about how other animals sense the world, Mm -hmm. and it's on my list, because we can't assume that humans learn any different than any other kind of creature. So if I think about a monkey uh, just born, they're taking everything in, temperature, you know, touch, uh, through all the senses, hearing, everything, it never stops. And I think that if you just think about people who look at the news every day, Uh, even if they're young or they're retired or whatever, I think people are constantly taking in information. And I'm not sure, are you uh, asking about how children learn and
0: teenagers and- Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, I'll just say like for me, one of the the really big insights um, from, I think it was in kids that I, you know, carry with me at all times (laughs) in a way (laughs) close to my heart is that um, you know? If we look at both, like how kids are learning, and then how um, the adults in the environment are sort of um, encouraging them to learn certain things or reinforcing them for some things and not others, that 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 whole process is really tied into the ecological conditions and the social conditions that these kids are are growing up in, and. You know, to me, it's a great example of how you know you can have both these sort of, you know, evolutionarily based um uh predispositions right for learning. Um, but they must be calibrated in a way where they're they're you know taking in all of this information and processing it to also figure out how to learn, and then for the parents. They're processing information as well, and then figuring out how they should be reinforcing their kids or not for that learning process. So, you know, there's this that interplay of both, you know, sort of the human nature of, of learning and the environment, and then between the you know others, whether they're adults or other kids, right, and the kids themselves and their learning. Um, it seems like such a complex but fascinating process, and and. and at its core, it's actually kind of intuitive, right, that parents and kids would be learning in ways that make sense for the and environment. And also
2: that, that how that happens uh, between young kids and others is deeply affected by culture. So if you're... Um, you know, a culture that is a living with small farm subsistence and everybody is pretty much in the same compound or there are multiple wives uh, of, of one guy. Um, children in, in those societies teach each other a lot. And when I saw my daughter in kindergarten and all the kids deciding where they wanted to play for their free play time, and they were all interacting with each other and just learning from each other. And, um, you know, I just don't think it ever stops. And there's always been a controversy about how much parental influence has on this process. I mean, I'm sure you know the work in which it suggests when kids get to be teenagers, parents don't have any influence anymore in Western culture. It's really their friends. Uh, But it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell because as people grow up, their influence, not only what they've learned, but also their life experiences. If they Mm -hmm. go through some trauma, it can change everything. Mm -hmm. And I I think it's absolutely true. We really don't know ourselves very well as a
0: species. Mm -hmm. We don't know who we are. What is a human? What does that mean? And then, how about the role of sort of, you know, risk or danger in the environment? How does that influence the way that, you know, kids are learning and the way that parents are sort of interacting with kids or other adults are interacting with right. kids uh, about their learning process. Right. Well, there's,
2: there's one theory that uh, separates, I guess, you would basically Western culture from other cultures and that when parents are worried about mortality, because uh, around the world, uh, it's very high mortality for children under five, except in Western culture. And so in those cultures, the parents are not so interested in the kind of, let's call it schoolbook book learning that, that we do in Western culture, because they're not sure those babies uh, are going to live. And then their subsistence is such that You have to learn how to do practical, what we would call in Western culture, practical tasks like weeding and bringing water and that sort of thing. But in Western culture, because so the theory goes, our child mortality is comparatively low. We have the luxury because we have healthcare and we have vaccines. We have the luxury of our children living and we have a lot more time with them and they they don't have to work in not all cases but in many cases little kids don't contribute to the family economy where in many cultures they do by those tasks such as babysitting 90% of the childcare in the world is done by other children and and so you have Two contrasting, and of course, there are cultures in the middle where kids do some household chores, but they're also they also have free time for learning. But in our in the modern culture, I mean, I don't remember the date exactly. Maybe you guys do when schools were invented, but public school was invented in the United States, Uh, and and so it's something very different. And uh, some people think, "Gee, I think my kids would be better off out in the fields." Uh, hurting the cows, they might learn more, but learn more about what, you know? I mean, all of those are value
0: judgments about learning. Although at the same time, you know, I think a lot of kids right now, you said like to have time off for learning. I think a lot of kids don't see it that way. Like my son, he definitely doesn't see it that way. My 10 year old, he's like, yeah, you know, I like being at school because my friends are there, but I, you know, I want to have time to do my other interests and I have to, you know, be sitting in a desk for eight hours a day and can't, you know, he can't do his other interests because of that. So I think there's like, I don't know, there, there's certain, certainly there's a lot of things that are great about having institutionalized education, but there are a lot of kids that are not particularly thriving in that, especially now. So I mean,
1: yeah, I think the, there's a question of you know so even if we have this luxury of time is this the best way to be spending and and even if we're like all right we've got a luxury of time and we want to spend that time helping to educate kids is the way we're doing it the right way um or is there a better way is there a more natural way um yeah. What do you guys and what, think?
0: What, and what does that even mean for it to be yeah, more, well, we, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: What what yeah. that mean? And, and also, and these are all very modern kinds of problems. We have of internet. Is that really a way people want a kids to learn? There's kids a question, you know, a how do you find something new, right, to learn that you never heard of I always think of never heard of anthropology until I of to college. I never even heard of it. of you know, and if I hadn't gone to college, I never would have known anything about it and known how, how cool it is. I wouldn't have known. So mm-hmm. in my personal experience, that's where I pretty much learned everything was in, in school, uh, except for elementary school. But let's not get into that. Um, <laughs> but, but also add on to that in, in the big theoretical idea that we have more time we're not all scrabbling, uh, for money, but now we have families where, uh, both parents are working. And so people who have to, because the price of housing has gone up so high, people are working to have what we might call a middle-class life, if we want to call it that. And their kids are in school. And if they weren't, where would they be because they don't have the parental interaction? Do they need the parental action? Maybe they don't. Maybe they could just stay home. I don't know. Or Personal. Throw all the
0: kids into a big room and then have well, them figure it out. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, I mean,
1: or, yeah. Or the parents uh, could bring the kids to work, right? And they'd be like back to like some sort of apprentice system. Yeah. Okay.
2: Someday I'll tell you the stories of me trying to bring my daughter to Cornell and how that oh. was unacceptable. Mm. Absolutely. Oh, Not really not so much when I taught at UC Davis, everybody brought their kids to school, but at Cornell, we were, my daughter and I, who was making no noise, were kicked out of a seminar once. And uh, and not by the person giving the talk. He was someone we knew, and I actually asked his permission by some graduate student who said, she's distracting. My kid was saying nothing. She was sitting there. So we left.
0: Yeah, when I had my, I was told it was the whole talk of the, of the psychology department. Yeah. Like what? Um, yeah. When I had my babies, I would take them, you know, I was in grad school and I would take them to seminars. I would take them to class and like lab meetings. Yeah. And s- sometimes people were like, Hey, cool. And other times, like I got looks, I got, you know, emails yeah. later. Um, it was, yeah. yeah. We have in this culture, in this modern Western culture,
2: separated parenting from the rest of life. And, and, I mean, uh, we did that as little as possible. We took my daughter everywhere, you know, but, again, adre- rejected at, at Cornell. And if I'd been at Davis, I know it wouldn't have been like that. But I think these is the reality of the Internet and two parents working. And also another thing that we, I haven't brought up yet is the decrease in the birth rate in Western culture, which, mm-hmm. I in my mind, hypothetically explains a lot so let's say you're a parent of eight children you're not going to have a lot of time to even if you are a stay-at-home parent to interact with each kid and you know help them with whatever if you have two children it's entirely different it's you know your eggs are in one basket right i'm not putting a value judgment on any of those it's just a practical thing that in Western culture, the birth rate is incredibly low. We know it's gone down. At some point, we could do another podcast about the decrease in sperm rates around the world. So there's an explanation. But people also, because there's reliable birth control, people choosing to have fewer children. If you're in a culture where there is no reliable birth control, you're going to have more children and then some of them are going to die because you don't have the health care. So we have a very mixed setup across cultures and we can't just think about Western culture. And, and also the other issue, which I talk about in my books is parental goals. We we're talking now like our goal with our kids is we want them to learn things. We want them to be educated. For other people, even in our culture, that is not the goal.
1: So what are some of the other goals?
2: Oh, well, I can tell you my parents' goal. Get up, grow up, and go get a job and leave (laughs) us alone.
0: (laughs) Oh, damn. No other
2: goal. There was never any, you know, uh, and then I watched as a professor, I watched students express that their parents' goal was to make sure they had a good job that made good money. That was never discussed in my household because, you know, that isn't how why people went to college back then. But some parents have no goal. They just happen to have these kids. And, you know, I think that was my parents. My mother once said, you kids think too much. In my day, you just got
0: married and had children. Oh, my God. Right. Well, at least she was, like, saying it, like, explicitly. Yeah, <laughs> I, was, like,
1: I mean, it's, <laughs> that doesn't sound that crazy to me. Like, yes. I'm, like, I'm like, that also sounds like she has goals, right? She's like, go out there, have kids, right? Yeah, yeah. So. And you know,
2: she wasn't recommending that because, uh, I, you know, she was one of eight and she had four kids. But the, now, well, she's gone. <laughs> but she used to say someone would have, like, their third or fourth child. And my uh-huh. mother, the mother of four, would go, I can't believe it. I can't believe they have four <laughs> children. Who has four children? And we just turn and look at her. I mean with the cultural change that people don't always have giant families anymore. And and that's in my lifetime that has changed. So that's a huge demographic shift. Uh, and it's kind of interesting that Western culture feels like they're in charge of everything, but we're a very minor part of the world
0: population. In fact. Yeah how is this this change with, you know, having fewer kids affecting how kids are are learning? I don't know how it's
2: affecting how they're learning, but it's certainly affecting the way their parents push them around, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah,
0: right. You know, so, uh,
2: uh, Athena and I have talked about, you know, uh, college applications and things like that and that craziness uh, over that. And... I remember when I was applying for college, my mother said, well, you can only apply to these two state schools because we don't have the money for the others. And I applied to two California state schools and got in, never thought about it twice, you know, and there was no flurry. There was no thought I wouldn't get in uh, and I was no great student, but the atmosphere has really changed. And some of that blame goes on the universities. I mean, a lot of it does. Uh, We read these articles in the Times, New York Times all the time, every day now about various lawsuits about dissatisf- dissatisfaction uh, uh, covid rules if we're getting taught on zoom why should we have to pay our full tuition i mean these are these these are critical questions about the cost of education and, and what you get for it and it goes back to that question what's the purpose why are we educating children and 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 young adults
1: so, we- so can i ask in your opinion, what do you think the purpose should be of education?
2: Um, to be educated. And so what do I mean by that? What do I mean by that is exposed to different ways of life and different ways of thought around the world and also to have critical thinking skills so you know the difference uh, you know between a hypothesis and a fact and being able to run your life by doing that. And also the one that surprised me as I became a professor is that I realized I was part of the network that taught young people the difference between right and wrong. And that was shocking to me because certainly as an academic, you never get any training in that. And yet it would happen all the time uh, over grades, over what you had to learn and what was right and what was wrong and how to act and, and advising these young people or advising them about their choice to go on to medical school and trying to talk with them about, I mean, I felt this huge responsibility for which I really had no training. And I was just giving my own thoughts, trying to get them to be, Uh, you know, no, you cannot download that from the internet and turn it in. That's wrong. (laughs) And, you know, teaching somebody what plagiarism is, that's sort of gone out the window because people are taking things off the internet all the time. Just an article in the time about the college essay is done. It's over.
0: Because now AI can make essays that are Right You know, at the level of an advanced undergraduate i've I've heard from my well, colleagues <laughs> and one of the things that i I didn't do in
2: my job particularly, but was to teach people how to write and communicate, both i mean it sounds like really like an old school- school marm, but correct grammar, you know in whatever language you're speaking and communicating how you feel and being an adult and that happens in college for people who go to college those years when you're no longer a teenager and in American culture, you're becoming an adult. And it, it was always really strange to be on that cusp, not for my only, for my only child, but for complete strangers, you know, and I often felt when students would get mad at me, I would think I'm the first time anyone said no to this, this person. And, uh, and I would just stick to my guns about things. So I, I could say, You could also ask me, why is it that I paid for my daughter to go to college? I mean, that's Yeah, so
1: why did you pay for your daughter to go to college?
2: And I actually said to her, I'm not, while her, you know, other people were saying, I should better get good grades and stuff. I was saying, I don't care about your grades. I'm sending you to college to be an educated person, and that's it. And I don't care what grades you get. I give them. You know, they're worthless. I just want to know if they're different. And after her first year at Columbia, um, I asked her, Do you, if you look at yourself when you were a freshman and now you're done with freshman year, just looking at your intellectual self, what you know, what you've learned, do you see a difference in those nine months? And she said, Oh, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then she began to quote Greeks to me. And really, I never had that good an education. (laughs) I don't know what she was talking about. Uh, But that, because I'm an educator and because I teach anthropology in particular, I think it would be different if perhaps I was a chemist or an engineer. Maybe what I would want someone to learn would be more hands-on and practical. But because I'm an anthropologist, I want them to learn about different cultures, different ways of thinking, and cultural relativity, basically. Um, and it would be interesting to ask, you know, maybe the study has been done. I don't read the education journals about what other parents say. And I'm guessing that what you say when your child is 2, 13, and 21 is different. That would be my hypothesis to test. I think it would be really interesting.
1: mm mm-hmm. So I have a question and I kind of, if you could connect two points for me, because you, you, you sort of were saying it's important to be educated, but then when you were talking about the students and what you wanted them to learn, it sounded like there was a, a real focus on them being ethical, right? That it was like, and so are those things inherently connected in your mind? Are they inherently connected in the education system? Um. Well, I
2: don't know about the education system, but um, they're connected in my mind with what I taught because I was talking about human behavior. And because I grew up in the era of anthropology, of cultural relativism, which Franz Boas gave us. um, And I uh, have always wondered if I so easily accepted that idea because I was already like that or because I was trained that way in in the simple terms of all cultures are interesting. All people are equal, no matter what they look like, what their background is. Um, and you know, that sounds like just some liberal woke stuff, but that has been with me since I was very young. And I don't know if my parents taught me that I certainly don't remember a moment of that, but it made sense to me that, you know, the Na people of China are just as interesting and their culture is just as sophisticated and, and, and complicated as democracy or something, you know, that it all was interesting to me. And apparently I passed that on my, to my daughter because that her college essay was about that. Hmm. It was about cultural relativity and her experience on the Navajo Nation and stuff like that. And I said to her, I don't remember ever talking to you about that. And she said to me, Oh, mom, it's in the air. You know, (laughs) I guess it was said. And, you know, and, and so for me, it was, I think the thing that my parents, especially my mother, did is, and she would say this out loud I just want to expose you children to things. And mm. so she would take us to museums. She would take us to concerts, and she did. We didn't talk about them afterwards. She didn't question us. She didn't elaborate on it. But she was exposing us to things, and she was the parent in the household that read a lot. You know, mm. every night, and we all got the habit mm. of reading in bed at night mm. from her. So she set an example and created did. an environment in which didn't, she yeah. didn't go to college or anything. You know, she wasn't. Ed- she went for one year to Meredith College, in fact, which is where I got my name. But you know, that and and she worked uh, eventually as a receptionist in, in a medical thing. But she was a curious person, mm-hmm. and if if you told her something new, she'd be interested. So I think it may come from that. I mean, who knows, right? But yeah. Like, yeah.
1: so, so I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth, but I keep hearing this sort of idea over and over again, that this sort of one of the inherent ideas that we should be conveying is that other people are as valuable as us and what they have to say is as valuable as us. And also going back even to the plagiarism thing that we as individuals have something valuable to say. And so I'm just now kind of curious when we think about an Athena. If you want to take it a different direction, that's fine. But we're thinking about zombification yeah. of education is is education? Are there ways in which I don't know? Do you want to take it from here, Athena?
0: Well, yeah, I, I'm. I have a lot of similar thoughts kind of running through my head. So I'm glad you kind of started this thread because you know I think that you know there are aspects of education that. Um, constrain what, you know, what individuals are able to express in terms of their own voice, their own interests. And, um, you know, there are things that might not be really aligned also with just the sort of intrinsic valuation of education. And not that all education has to be for the sake of learning itself, right? You could have practical education too, but there's a sort of I don't know. This is just what I have noticed with my kids and with a lot of students at ASU is that I sense that there's a feeling of disempowerment, which, you know, and since Dave and I talk about zombification all the time, we've been talking about, like, you know, these kids, do they feel zombified by these systems that they're in, that they're not actually able to come to the table with their genuine curiosity, with, you know, the kinds of things that you were saying, Meredith, about your mom, and, you know, you just like wanting to understand the world, um, you know, how do we make a system that allows space for that and then allows for the, the gaining of the knowledge from the previous generation um, in a way that doesn't, you know, stifle the curious souls <laughs> of the, <laughs> this next generation?
2: Well, I uh, my answer to that is, you know, my, I have an N of one in, in terms of this, which is my own kid. And um, because she grew up in Ithaca, New York, I was always greatly impressed by the schools. And she went to public school and I spent time in them. And I saw, uh, you know, I never once got a feeling that the kids were being zombified in any way. In mm-hmm. fact, the opposite. And, oh, that's great. It was actually pretty beautiful to watch. Um, mm. I think it was second grade, maybe, maybe third. The te- for example, the teacher put paper underneath the tables in the room, taped it, like came in on the weekend and did that. And because she was teaching them about the Sistine Chapel and Michelangelo. And the kids came in and they had to lie on their backs and paint something underneath as if it was the roof. And I'm just like, what? What? And another teacher, they had nature journals, and they would take time out every day. Or if they saw a bird at the window, everybody had to drop what they were doing, and they looked at the bird, and they drew it, and they talked about it, and that kind of stuff. And um, she went to a medical school in high school that's an alternative school in Ithaca, but is a public school. And there was uh, a lot of control by the students. I mean, the students do the governance And um, the the schools run on the idea of social justice. And I know that's not true in all schools, but I've been watching Abbott Elementary. Have you been watching that? Uh -uh. Yeah. No? Uh, Do you know what I'm talking about, Abbott Elementary?
1: Is it a Um, documentary or?
2: No, no, no. No, it's a comedy series. And uh, what you see in there is elementary school teachers who care so deeply about their children and are doing all kinds of things with them. And uh, this is going to sound really lame, but w- I, I co- some comments came up on Twitter when during this whole controversy, I'd say what, like the last six months where books are being banned from school libraries, school librarians are quitting, uh, they're so hassled, you know, the nurses, school nurses are hassled about the vaccine, uh, you know, you're not allowed to talk about LBGTQ, um vaccine. P- Peep, you know, and you're not allowed mm-hmm. to do anything anymore in some states. And uh, there's a huge uh, teacher shortage because who would want that job? So on Twitter, you get these comments and uh, especially from, you know, elementary, middle school and high school teachers saying, uh, I've done this for 30 years. And now I am, you know, during when we had to Zoom school, people were telling us how great we were. And now we're being vilified and I don't need this anymore. Mm. And the whole movement that parents are in charge of whether uh, what children learn, parents will be in charge of whether a child uh, passes to another grade. My attitude is these people got training in teaching little kids. And I and one person wrote, instead of all this complaining, why don't the parents ask their kids what they did in school today? And why don't they volunteer and be in the classroom and see what really goes on? Like you've forgotten what it was like when you were a kid. And I've always admired these teachers. I couldn't do that eight hours a day. I always felt I was overpaid you know, for what I did compared to the hard work of being that yeah. kind of teacher.
0: Well, yeah.
1: So as a parent, um, and you know, the Arizona system is a little different than the Philly system. I grew up outside of Philly, and now my kids go to school in Arizona. And my mom... Uh, taught in both places, right? Uh, I mean, uh, teachers are great everywhere. Yeah, the education system—it's—they're not really letting teachers decide. These I mean, like
2: legislatures like the the um, the the school board. Yeah, we like
1: our our things had so many things of like teachers can't say this, teachers can't say that, you know. And and my mom got burnt out, you know, like and not because she didn't like the kids; she loved the kids, but. Mm-hmm. I think that's I mean from my point of view that's mm-hmm. I'm like oh man our system is broken yeah, yeah. disempowering
0: yeah. people at all levels right mm-hmm.
1: yeah. yeah um and so so that's the thing that I'm trying to figure out how how can we how can we <laughs> How can well, you we know, fix it. You know,
2: it's funny. There's, a, a, it, it's on one hand, you have disempowering teachers, and then as a professor at Cornell, the other end of that is um, students who were brought up to believe that every word out of their mouth was important. <laughs> that was not a good part of my job, and mm. I have recently, I recently had a talk with some. 30-year-old, who told me that Western culture has spread around the world and is saving everyone. And I tried to have a so-called discussion. It was going nowhere. And I just thought this kid was brought up to believe that everything he thinks is right and doesn't have an open mind, isn't listening to other people. And so, you know, who knows where he got that from? I don't know. Uh, but, uh, so I don't, I guess I don't, Athena, I don't really understand what you mean by empowerment
0: and disempowerment. You know what? Yeah. I think that part of it is that, you know, there's very different sort of contexts in which education is happening. Like you mentioned this idea of, you know, kids that grow up thinking that every word out of their mouth is gold. It's the opposite issue that, I deal with at ASU with my students where they don't feel like they have anything to say, not all of them, but a lot of them, you know, they, but then once they get engaged and they get interested and they're like, oh, I could actually, you know, like state a hypothesis and make a prediction about something that's new, then like they start to become people in a way that they weren't when they, you know, started in my class or started in this, you know, program that we have around like looking at cooperation across disciplines. Mm-hmm. So I think that. So you wonder, it is really happened. that we're seeing different worlds, you know, of how, you know, like kids are being raised and going through the education system because, you know, at ASU it's, you know, it's a, pretty decent cross-section of the population, um, that we have, um, as opposed to just, you know, elite, elite students. Yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 And you wonder if that kind of unknowing of curiosity or whatever, um, is something that came from the home or from the school system. It's it's kind of, because what, if? I mean, I certainly know people who aren't curious about anything, You know, they don't tend to be my friends, but there are lots of people that just don't have the kind of curiosity or impetus to learn something new, And whether that's just them or they turned out that way, or is that bad? I mean, if they're happy, who are we to
0: say? But if they've never, you know, had the opportunity to, you know, be in an environment where, you know, they can realize that there are all these things out there to learn about and that, you know, that they can come with their whole selves to engage and try to learn, yeah. um, you know, if they haven't had that opportunity. And, and you know, it could be that part of that is also just constraints of, you know, growing up in a situation where there aren't as many resources available. Um, there's not as much space for this, you know, learning for the sake of learning because of, you know, economic or social challenges. So I think there could be a lot of reasons for it. Sure. sure. And sometimes the most interesting people to me
2: are people who uh, do, you know, I was just talking to a guy yesterday, a financial guy, and we began to talk about uh, the book, The Dawn of Everything, my new favorite book. And uh, he had read this, that, and the other thing. And it always surprises me when people who have some kind of job and yet they're reading in in fields completely different, you know, and they're busy people, but that's what they're doing. But I also have friends. I mean, I used to have a best friend who basically didn't read and it was always startling to me and she wasn't a lesser person because of that. She was just different, but it was not somebody I would, you know, talk to about Bleak House or anything. You know,
1: what would just, you What would you talk to her about?
2: Emotional things, <laughs> personal.
1: <Huh? laughs>
2: things. Yeah, uh-huh. that was great. That was I, great. And she, she was an educated person, you know. But I, I think that maybe just some people aren't going to be, uh, you know, self learners. I don't know what would have happened to me if I mean I, I can't really say, but I think some people are more initiative based than others, um, and. You know, you would hope that in the school system. I mean, I went to Catholic school as a kid, so I can't say I was exposed to much of anything. But <laughs> you know, except fear. Uh, but I, what I see as an adult, when I look at certainly at public schools, and I don't know anything about private schools, the kids are exposed to all kinds of things. And I don't, you know, we kind of pull away when we start to talk about the internet. But in fact, if used correctly, that would, you know, be a fabulous way. And that's one reason people are trying to get the internet into uh, spaces around the world where people don't have access to a library or something because it's a
0: chance to do that. Um, yeah. My my kids love, you know, like there's a bunch of YouTubers that they watch that are really quite good at breaking down complex scientific concepts and like doing, you know, little experiments and engineering things. And Mm -hmm. I'll sometimes watch them with them and they're, they're really good. They're like entertaining, they're fast paced. They're like, you know, kind of cultivating like both a sense of like curiosity and like some of these engineering ones, they're just like a little bit chaotic in a way that's really fun, you you know, cause like these young people are like trying to build things like a surgery robot and turns out it's really hard, but you know, they like make it really fun and engaging. And um, I kind of wonder like, you know, like, is there a space to bring that kind of energy more into the formal education system this like you know kind of like you're you're it's like this exuberance you're like I want to try all the things and can I make it work and then like you know realizing oh there's challenges and if you want to do that you have to learn a bunch of things and you know that that um I mean it's almost like a almost as a little bit of a, of a crazy energy. I guess maybe well, I'm just kind of you know, like that about, like, I just love to learn things. And I'm like, oh, all the things. Um, so. I, certainly, I
2: certainly knew lots of teachers like that, you know, uh, undergraduate and, um, high school and middle school. And then some teachers aren't like that because that's your, that's their personality.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So how do you, I don't think is it possible to infuse that kind of enthusiasm in the education training for teachers?
0: I mean, everybody has a different personality. Mm -hmm. Or making space for that. Or, I mean, positively reinforcing it somehow. (laughs) You know, I don't know. I I just, I don't see this like, um, uh, you know, this sort of like creative space that um, everybody's sort of invited in to to be a part of. How would that work
2: in a practical sense? It sounds like Montessori in a sense. I, it I, might I be know.
1: similar. I mean, so yeah, one thing I was kind of wondering is like, how do animals, other animals learn and teach, right? Well, what there's
2: is no teaching. I mean, it, there's a little bit of it in chimpanzees, but basically it's all just uh, the littler ones watching. That's all it is. Yeah, I don't mean all, but that's how it happens because there's no language, first of all, and most of our teaching is done through language, right? If we didn't have language, what would we do? You can't describe anything. You just have to show.
1: I guess, yeah, we'd have to demonstrate. I mean, could we have a system like that? Could we have a system, a demonstration-based system? This almost goes back to the, like, take your kids to work day.
0: Yeah. Or some of
2: what's going on on YouTube, honestly. Yeah. You know, Michelle Obama taught herself to knit on YouTube. Really? That's what she did. She's a big knitter now. Yeah, I'm a knitter, so, you know, I know these things. Yeah. She taught herself to knit using YouTube. So really, and I changed my bathroom plumbing, easy. so you know.
1: Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. when you were teaching, did you get to take kids on field trips?
2: Uh, we did go to the Syracuse Zoo a couple of times, uh, but other things that we did in my human evolution course, which is a big intro bioanthro course, uh, we had I had a lab in um, in Cornell with casts of fossils, so we'd set that set that up and do, and. You know, they'd look at that kind of stuff. Um, and the zoo trip was kind of fun, but there aren't that many non-human primates at the Syracuse Zoo. But you know. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, the non-human primates are my favorite at the, it, at the zoo. I could just yeah. sit and watch them for yeah. a really, really long time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and that's, of course, what the discussion this section is supposed to be about. And we all know how hard it is to get kids to talk who don't want to talk and are not used to it, um, and, and, that, and that's hard. And sometimes people are just shy, and they don't want to talk, or they're female, and they think they don't have anything to say because they've been taught they don't have anything they said to say. Uh, and so that's a certain art that, as professors, we all try to learn ourselves is mm-hmm. how to navigate a discussion section to get people involved. Yeah, and we've all been stuck with you know what does that kid think, and then that kid says something for the first time, and it's brilliant. Yeah, and you wish. Yeah, that's more. But that's, it's not their thing. Talking it out is not their thing.
0: Yeah, I mean that's the thing that I I really love about teaching is when the students start to talk, to ask questions, to just you know like want to know things, and even for the students that aren't actively, you know, participating in the discussion, like, you can see them engage in a different way, because their peers are having something to say. And to me, that's really, that's the most exciting thing. Well, I also have
2: teaching. opinions about those peers. Uh, I'm sure you've all gotten them the complaints, sometime a student will come in and go, that person is an idiot, and I wish they would shut up. You know, you have a person who just will not stop
1: talking. I, I, I'm so sure you guys are talking about me right now. And so I'm sorry. <laughs> I have a lot of questions. So. <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's, you know, that's part of our job is trying to balance that out and get people to be engaged sometimes, you know, because mm-hmm. they don't. And maybe they're perfectly fine at home and they do things, but yeah. it's they're just
0: more shy. Yeah. yeah. Meredith, I have to say that, like, the conversation that we've had up to this point, um, there, there've been a lot of things that you've said that are really like inspiring to me about like there being, you know, not just models for this more engaged education, but a lot of places that are like really successfully doing this and teachers that are really successfully um, doing this. And, um you know, so so thinking about you know not like oh everything is wrong with education obviously it's not that everything is wrong with education but there are you know there are places where the you know constraints or regulations i think on yeah. what teachers can do what students can do um might be negatively impacting
2: yeah the the, the whole uh,
0: no child left behind was disastrous
2: for american education mm-hmm. and yeah. Uh, that, that's just foolish. They, I think everyone agrees, teachers, students, everybody except the legislature or the, uh, you know, the rules of the, the school board, that testing is horrible, and especially multiple choice testing. I mean, now there's a move to get rid of the SAT. Please do that. There is no correlation between your score on the SAT and how you end up in life. It's just stupid. And I say that because I'm terrible at those tests. Uh, so my GRE is so, uh, is so bad, I've never told anyone. But I got into college, you know. So I got into graduate school. Uh, and, and so those, those are practical things that uh, some teachers have been lobbying against for a long time. Um, and as soon as you put in that kind of testing, I think it squashes individual curiosity and in learning. Because, and and that happened to me in eighth grade when the nuns had to, he had to take a test to go to high school. And that's all we did for a year is that, and it was so boring and so, and a waste of time. So in a practical sense, you know, maybe we should get rid of all grades, you know, I mean, that's, that might be a little extreme, but uh, you know, just that constant testing that the school boards impose or the state imposes and I often wonder, are these people, have they ever been in a classroom, you know, as adults to see what it's like? You're legislating this stuff, but does it really make a difference? Are you reading the literature? I I don't know. There's an art to teaching and there's an art to learning and it needs a lot of room, you know, because
0: kids are different from each Mm -hmm. other, really different. Can, Can you say more about that? Like, what is the room that's needed well, for that uh, art of teaching and learning to really right. be able to fully bloom.
2: If if you can recognize, I mean I've never been an elementary school teacher but I certainly watched them and what I saw uh were, were teachers because they're in the classroom 8 hours a, or you know 6 hours a day whatever it is. They get to know the kids really well and the good teachers are the ones who recognized what that child was oriented towards or Thought they weren't capable of and urging them to be capable. And, you know, and I know this from parent-teachers' conferences, and the way that teachers talked to me about my child made me realize they knew her really well. And they actually gave me information that I didn't know because at that point they were spending a lot more time with her than I was. And it was really helpful information. And through some of that, I learned how my child learned. So getting parents involved by having teacher conferences can, you know, if people don't go to those, they don't have them, you know, and you don't get to express what you think. I think my child is really good finding out new things. And can you give him some space to do that? And a good teacher would say, sure, you know, during X period, that kid can go do that. You know, I think there's room for it, but uh, it's really... From the top down, the legislatures, you know, the school boards, I, I, I think they're infuriating. Mm. And, um, and I think when people are really angry at the school because it doesn't teach the way they want, then parents have the right to take their kids out and teach them themselves. And they should do that instead of bashing the teachers, you know, or put them in a different school, find a different school that you think is better and try to get them in. I mean, I know it's not that easy. And I, I, you know, um, it's a vast universe of children. It's, it's gigantic and not, there's no one size fits all. And so the whole idea of public school was that everybody had to write to learn, a, a right to learn to read and write. And we'll do that and we'll do more things. But then the school has been asked to do more and more after school programs and the kids are there all the day because the parents have to work. And it just like, you know, it's a lot. I think they have to teach. Um, Agreed. And you know, you see these articles come up where some teacher is saying either racist or, or, you know, things. And you think, what is that person doing being a teacher?
0: (laughs) Yeah. You know,
2: homeschooling has become very accepted. Well, I'm from Ithaca. So Yeah. And it originally, I don't know everything about it, but a lot of people, it was religious based, you know, they didn't want their children in a secular school. And then it became more people dissatisfied with the public school education. And so I can do this. And um, I think, I, I wish that there'd be more activity about how to change either the way teachers are trained, or, I mean, it's going to get hard to be get a consensus about how a teacher should be, you know, beyond knowing the subject. How, I, I just don't know how you do that. I think there are always going to be good teachers and bad teachers, you know, in a system. But it has a lot to do with the principal, and it has a lot to, lot to do with the school board. And we've seen uh, in the last six years that school boards have become, you know, the center of political life. And they were all before as well. And I don't know, these are all policy questions. Who makes the policy for yeah. education? I mean, this is, these edu- the public schools are run by the government. And if you don't like the government, then you don't send your kids to public okay. school. Uh, it's, it's a social policy. And I think that's what a lot of parents forget, it is a social policy of the United States government to have public school. And the aim is to basically start out teaching kids to read and write and then some other things, you know, and hope they get some other ideas and hopefully make them good citizens, whatever that means. Um, so it isn't, it isn't geared to individual tastes. It isn't. It isn't geared to individual parents. It is a social policy for everybody. <coughs> How do you satisfy everybody? Yeah,
0: well, and then you know, with with any large scale system that involves a lot of humans, there have to be some like regulations and protocols and things really? like that, like right? The, to- the healthcare system. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, well, I mean, at some level, we're lucky it's as good as it is. If you compare it to the healthcare system, which is a complete mess, and talk about something where you feel like you have no power because you don't you know, it's really insane. So it, it, but because school boards run things locally, it could be managed, you know, Mm -hmm. and this is probably some kind of blasphemy, but what I think is the biggest problem in the public education system of the United States is that schools are funded locally from real estate taxes and so if and people move all the time to get their kids in better schools, they buy a more expensive house. And I live in Philadelphia where the schools suffer because they don't have that. I think this is immoral in fact, and that all the money should be collected and divided equally. And that would change the education
0: system more than anything. Mm. Yeah, you just made me realize that the housing crisis is so tied in with the education crisis. Absolutely. And because more people, I think I have this right, more people rent
2: in America now than own. So then what you have is landlords paying the school tax. You know, and I, you know, I have heard people, friends of mine who are older, retired, never had children, and they resent that they have to pay tax on their house to fund the schools and i always say it's a social policy that was established so we have an educated citizenry so if you're one of the citizens you buy into that that that's part of it mm-hmm. um and i do it it's an unfair system in so many ways
0: because of the way it is constructed historically and now yeah so, so uh,
1: oh, oh go ahead you go ahead
0: just to follow up on on this like in terms of this zombification issue, right, like having regulations and protocols and rules is is necessary on some level to prevent, you know, kids from being exploited, to prevent things from happening that just, you know, shouldn't happen in educational systems, um, and to, you know, have some semblance of, uh, you know, organization and continuity and those things that we we value. Um, but, you you know, it does then create the possibility of sort of, you know, freezing things up, like making it hard then for the creativity, the curiosity, the innovation to to be there. So it's like we need a certain amount of, you know, zombification or control or (laughs) rules, right, in order to make it work okay. Um, But how do we have a set of rules that simultaneously allow for that beautiful, fun generative process that can happen, you know, in learning and in teaching and in, you know, exploring ideas together, even, you know, learning practical things like how to fix your toilet, right? That can be really fun if it's in the right context. So, so yeah, this, you know, how do we find that right balance? What kind of zombification do we want to have? in education? And what do we not want to have in education?
2: Maybe part of it these days is the idea. And we talked about this before that the culture in America is that everybody has to go to college and statistics show that people who go to college earn more money than people who don't. And I read an article in the times saying, this is the true divide in America. Now it's, it's really, it's, it, it, as race on economics, it's who graduated from college and who didn't. And that's really who's divi- what's dividing the country. That is so completely different from Europe. And I spend a lot of time in Italy and it is completely acceptable to not go to college. It is completely normal and you still can get a good job. And I know that because I have friends who are in high positions that in this country they would never get the job because they didn't go to college. And if I were going to want it to change anything, it would be besides collecting all the money and dividing it among schools equally, it would be that. So if you wanted, we, we have trade schools, but we don't think highly of them, and that's a mistake. And so that is a status thing, or as um, the writer Wilkerson would say, it's a caste issue you know, that Mm. you went to trade school to, to become an electrician or become a nanny or whatever, you're not considered of high status, which means you don't get paid as much, but it's mostly the status and how people look at you. And so now we are, this whole one child left behind is about making sure that everybody gets the high test scores and they pass this, you know? And so it, it, it all funnels in one direction and that direction is towards making more money. So we get to capitalism once again, Uh, you know, it's not about having a happy life or fulfilled life. It's about making money and buying a house and, you know, living the so-called American dream, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, So I, you know, I don't know how you change it because cultures change on their own. They aren't necessarily, I mean, The internet has changed our culture, but other changes have happened that don't have to do with the internet and cultures constantly change all the time. And I don't know how much control we have over that kind of stuff.
0: Mm. Well, then maybe the question is not, you know, how do we control it or zombify it, but how can we listen to the ways that it's changing to the, you know, the people who are doing things that are moving in what, we think are the right direction and, you know, amplify those or learn from those or kind of take these seeds of, you know, things that are working well and water them and grow them into, you know, something that can then become a bigger part of our culture and, you know, the norms, get the norms to move in, in those directions that we think are going to be serving the and people that may, inside them better. That may happen over time with the decrease in the birth rate.
2: That there will be, you know, it's not every family having eight children. Let's just get them through school. Uh, it, it, there may be more time for particular attention. You know, they they say classroom size is going down uh, because the population of the United States, especially if we have strong immigration policies, there aren't enough people. There aren't enough people to do the jobs, and so there are f- they're going to be fewer and fewer children. And maybe the silver lining is there will be you know, it's like children of the baby boomer. This was like a cattle herd, you know, like it wasn't a lot of time for individual expression, but maybe just with fewer kids, there will be more time for that.
0: But with fewer kids, there's also less like crazy generative energy of like, let's do some stuff. Right. I, I mean, I, I'm kind of like, uh, I'm, I'm sort of weird in my generation. Cause you know, I have three kids and like I, I love kids and like the kind of chaotic energy of it all like I I sort of thrive on on that and seeing them like learn from each other and do things together you know even if they're things that I don't think of as particularly educational right like like playing video games together or something, but then like talk to them about it afterwards. And it turns out they're actually like learning a lot of things <laughs> about, mm-hmm. you know, working together and like engaging their social network and, and stuff like that. Um, and but so
2: that will work for all kids. That will work for all. some kids mm-hmm. just really want to be by themselves and learn on their own. Mm-hmm. I think it's more of trying to figure out what works for every kid and how to en- how to encourage that kid. And hmm. if that kid is not getting that input at home, is it possible to do it in the classroom? And mm-hmm. I've certainly seen lots of teachers do that and admire mm-hmm. them for that. But yeah. they're not we're not going to get all teachers like that. That's just well, not
0: humanly possible. And I mean, teachers are underpaid and overworked and have more students in the classroom than they can, you know give the attention to that they want, especially with the demands, you know, in terms of testing, preparing them for testing and all that. So, yeah. I mean, how do we, how do we get those spaces then for the individual ways that students are like wanting to learn to like more for teachers, them, more money, <laughs> teachers, more money, more freedom maybe to, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because
2: yeah. not all kids will do well on on you know so a more sort of free form education. Mm-hmm. Some kids do better uh, with you know direct instruction yeah. and tasks. Right. Um, I just <laughs> I've had this conversation with my Italian teacher over and over. I said, "Give me homework. I need homework. Mm. Well, I'm the kind of person that needs to sit alone with whatever I've learned and do this stuff alone. Mm. I, you know." Uh, so that that wouldn't yeah. work for me, and cool. if I
0: was surrounded by people, you know, speaking yeah. Italian all the time, it would it would be too confusing. That's me. interesting. It, it's it's making me think about how you know in a lot of schools, in a lot of elementary schools, they're large enough that they're two or three or four classrooms for each grade. Sometimes, and, I, mean, I don't I don't know. I haven't been in one in a long time. So. Yeah. Well, and it seems like maybe, maybe there's a missed opportunity there to actually have different styles of learning in these different classrooms. Um, Because, you know, that would be a way to at least like have some plurality, some possibility for, you know, teachers to take different approaches and for students to, you know, be in the classrooms that fit their learning styles better. And, And, you know, I mean, I think there's, you know, there's this sort of like, oh, you know, in elementary school, everybody's kind of in the same classroom, and then they start sort of tracking the kids, and then it's this this sort of like status issue of like, oh, these are the you know high-performing students, these are the middle ones, these are the ones that kind of need more help. But you know, if maybe the approach was less like tracking based on quote-unquote ability or intelligence, and more like tracking on the basis of learning style, um, that that could be a really interesting model for, you know, creating spaces where, you know, it's not just about, uh, you know, okay, all the smart kids here, and all the kids that have behavioral challenges here, but rather, oh, okay, here are kids who learn and like to learn in a certain kind of way. And then here's kids who like to learn in another kind of way. And, And, you know, empowering the kids to, you know, be a part of sort of understanding their own learning styles and deciding that and maybe even participating in, you know, how those classrooms will be run based on what works for them.
2: Well, that that's educational policy stuff. And that again comes from the school board. Um, and those people often have a different agenda going on. They're more sitting mm-hmm. in control of, uh, you know, and uh, that's, that's, what, that's what's hard. And that's exactly why people send their kids to private school if they can afford it, because they think it'll be, you know, looser in that sense. But trying to accommodate everybody is hard. So in that example, if you wanted to do that, if you already had three second grades, you know, you, you yeah, already yeah. had three teachers. But if you only have one second grade, yeah, you know, like how, you have to have three teachers or a teacher and two assistants and, mm-hmm. Some, right. some places do have those assistants. You know, yeah. it's really about uh, accommodating all the different ways that children are in one space, and hmm. that's a pretty high task.
0: Yeah, that's really
2: hard. Yeah, and um, you know, kids with all kinds of challenges, and we we also have that at the university level, mm-hmm. uh, which is why yeah. sometimes we get those accommodation letters, and you know, try to help people up, knowing that. Yeah. Some people taking a, a test makes them so anxious they can't
0: settle right. down.
2: Yeah. You know? And um, it, it, it's just, it's people trying to accommodate the little people. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's, uh, you know, you can't really accommodate everybody. That's really what yeah. happens at the end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, so,
0: Meredith, I know that you, you know, kind of follow a little bit sort of what's going on in the world of education and um, the challenges that are happening now on the sort of broad scale. So I wanted to ask you, like, you know, if the the challenges and the problems that are going on right now in education and the sort of zombification processes that are that are happening and, you know, um, th- those aspects that are um, really not working now, if we kind of Take this to a log- It's logical conclusion. If the we like amplify, yeah, like the, all these bad things that you know are happening right now. Like, what is the zombie apocalypse of you know <laughs> education? Like, what does that look like? Nobody learns
2: anything, <laughs> or it's mm. it's a brave new world, and everybody learns exactly the same thing. Um, I I think that what we're looking at now, which has been a surprise in the last couple of years, is all the challenges, especially to, uh, quote unquote, elite universities in terms of um, lawsuits, uh, free speech. I mean, that's happening. Uh, How much free speech do professors have? Um, You know, higher education tends to be liberally based. And so shouldn't there also be conservative people? Shouldn't they be able to speak? uh, but how do you prevent hate speech, speech, uh, safety on campus for what kids say or don't say. And, you know, I, one of the things that I taught in introductory biological anthropology is we would talk about race as, as a non-biological thing, socially constructed. And afterwards the kids would say to me, they'd be very hesitant to talk about it. And they would say to me, I, I, it's really hard for me to talk about this out loud, you know, and uh, kids of all races. And um, I I just think that we need to, I don't know, I think honor the fact that not everybody learns the same way. Not not everybody is the same way. What are the basics we want them to know? Uh, And I would go back again to reading, writing, and math. I mean, that just gets you through the day. And One of the losses has been, at least in Ithaca High School, there used to be a class about daily life skills, balancing Hmm. the checkbook, how to, you know, things like that. What is insurance? And it's sort of a shame, that I think, that that is not there. But I'm sure that there were those parents, maybe the school board, who thought that was stupid, you know, that they should be learning something else. Well, why, why? It was really practical and good, And uh, so maybe part of anti-zombification is reevaluating what it is in today's world that is helpful for people to get through the day, let alone get through their life, you know, their whole life, make a good decision. What do you need to know and what works for you and what might be harmful to you or yours or not harmful to you or yours. And uh, I, I don't do education policy, so I don't know how that's how that's working. Um, I think that the internet has amplified the voices of all the dissatisfied people, and and sort of silenced the voices of people who are satisfied with the education system. Mm. You know, people get on Twitter when they're unhappy with something, not necessarily when they're happy. And that came after, I don't know what it was. And they did, somebody did a poll and it said a yeah, huge percent, you know, like 75% of American parents are satisfied with the public school system, but we don't hear from them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And really, you know, if we want to make things better for everyone, we have to understand what is working. For people, right? right? And what's not? And, you know, and this, what is this con- education. What is being an educated yeah. person? What does that yeah. mean? Yeah. Well, and, and do- I think yeah. as this conversation is also like shown, different things are happening in different places and have been happening in different places. So for people who are like, yeah, this is great, this is working, then it should be like, oh, well, what's happening exactly? Then why is it working? And, you know, can these ideas be ported? Can be transmitted? You know, can we, can we, you know, get that cultural transmission of the things that are good by understanding what's good and what's working. Um, And, you know, maybe building those uh, pathways of information sharing and culture sharing um, between places where things maybe are working better and places where there are more challenges. Because, you know, we do, as humans... Like we can not just learn about things, but we can learn about how to set up systems so that learning can happen better. Right? There's like meta learning. That's a, <laughs> an opportunity here. Or it's so. organizational
2: and its goals and, and all those things. And yeah. I, I do know that educational policy is a very amorphous, uh, you know, organization or whatever you want to call it, discipline. And you know, things come and go. Uh, older parents will say, "Oh, yeah, you know, these policies they just come and go." You know, Mm -hmm. and as as the education system tries something out, you know, remember when you used to have to sit at a desk in a row? Well, you don't really see that much anymore, Uh, especially in the younger grades. Kids are at tables. That's actually a big change, you know, because kids are facing each other and it's not as regimented. Mm -hmm. Who decided that? The teachers? Like, how did that happen? Because that's actually a big difference. Yeah. You know, whether you're yeah. allowed to go to the bathroom by yourself or you have to go with someone else, you know, these. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, isn't it, maybe it's just city by city. Uh, children getting a decent, uh, getting decent meals.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I had a friend who was a school nurse and her whole campaign was trying to change the kitchen so that instead of powdered eggs, the kids got real eggs that cost the same, you know, to, so because mm-hmm. nutritionally, how can you learn? And I saw some of the food kids was, were getting and it was dreadful, you mm-hmm. know, so that that's part of it, too. That should be part of the educational policy that everybody gets breakfast and lunch and it's decent. Yeah. If we're
0: doing a social policy like that. Yeah. yeah. Basic human needs, you know, I mean, people can't be in a good position to learn if their basic mm-hmm. needs aren't met.
2: That's right, if they're not, if they don't feel safe, and if they're hungry,
0: they can't yeah, you know, so yeah, yeah. it's tough yeah. do you have hope for the f- the future of education, Meredith?
2: I do, I do I and maybe it's just that part of me that's always curious, and I look forward to having grandchildren, and I'm sure I'll be just like my mother, I'll be taking them to you know all the museums and experiences, and I told my daughter growing up that when you give a gift, it is better to give an experience than a thing. And that's what she does as an adult now. And and so, you know, the
0: brainwashing went really well on that. Awesome. Yeah. You got to zombify your kids a little bit, you know. <laughs> well, Meredith, thank you so much oh, thank for, you for sharing your talk. brains with us today. Yeah. Yeah. It's great to talk with you. And if the home says that we're crying could... Zombified is a production of Arizona State University and Zombified Media.
1: And we would like to thank everyone who has made Zombified possible, including the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University.
0: The Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative and the President's Office at ASU.
1: The Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics.
0: All the brains that helped make this podcast, including Tal Rom, who does our sound.
1: Neil Smith, who draws us.
0: Lemmy, the creator of our song, Psychological.
1: And the Z team who do so many things and are just amazing. Yes. And I want to add one more thank you to, I want to thank all my teachers um, growing up and also all my kids' teachers at McClintock High and Westchester East High School, all you guys, and all the other teachers out there, but yeah. mostly my teachers. Yeah,
0: so, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump on that bandwagon and thank all the amazing teachers I had, especially when I was in high school at Willowbrook High School uh, in Villa Park, Illinois. Shout out, you guys are amazing. Um, you, but, but uh, not as
1: good as the teachers at Westchester East.
0: So. <laughs> <laughs> No, you guys were, I mean, like talk about, you know, people as part of a broader community who like raise kids together. Like I feel like my high school teachers like really helped to raise me. And, um, and also my teachers at Reed college, you guys are awesome. And, uh, all my kids, teachers, all the teachers, all the teachers. That's we're just true. Actually, I also, even, I
1: had some really good teachers at NYU. Like, it, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's true. So
0: teachers, we love you. And, uh, you know, we're, we want to like make education better. Like Dave and I really, really care about this. And so um, if you have thoughts and ideas, like reach out to us too. Like we, we want to talk about this stuff. So. Yeah. So if you made it all the way to this part, <laughs> right. Of the we podcast, should have said this
1: at the beginning. I know. If that's all you're right. Still
0: listening, like, <laughs> absolutely. Reach out to us. Uh, and also, you can um, follow us and support us um, by getting on social media. We are Zombified Media on all the platforms.
1: That's true. And uh, we're also, you can just go to zombified.org or zombifiedmedia.org. Both will take you to some version of us where, like, Spawning new versions of ourselves all the time.
0: (laughs) Yes. And you can also um, support us in continuing to be our educational, no ads podcast, Um, even just $1 a month on Patreon. Um, You can find us. We are zombified on Patreon.
1: That's true. So you can also usually volunteer at schools for people who are interested in just helping with the education system, by the way. Right.
0: So you don't have to support us, you can support other people right those are, are two separate things
1: pricing. you can do both you can do both yes. <laughs> um and uh and then you should also buy our shirts and our hats and our all those uh, stickers and yeah
0: so, yeah and wear um, them to school
1: yeah exactly or put so, them on your
0: on your computer so everyone can see it when you're or give
1: them to your teacher give them to your kids yes, teachers you should buy them they're perfect thank you thing so yeah
0: speaking <laughs> of thank you thank you for listening to zombified your source for Fresh Brains. I
1: know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something supernatural with you. Makes me out the way.